You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So today we are going to be covering a lot of different Bible verses, actually, because this is one of the more puzzling aspects of the Apostles' Creed, the phrase that we're getting into today. We're going to start out with a basic passage. I think I preached on this on Easter a while back, and I've used this passage a number of times. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just verse 1 through 4. You can follow along with the sermon on uh, the U version of, and I see Otto's doing that right now on his phone. The notes with all the quotes and everything are in there, in that version. We'd love for you to follow along there um, and take notes along with it. Um, or later on this week, you can download our app, Listen to us online, and I know we're live streaming right now, right, Wyatt? We are not live streaming right now. We are recording for Tuesday and not live streaming. Okay. The network is a little wonky. Is that what we're saying? Okay. Well, okay. So we're not live streaming. I think I know some people who are not happy right now because of that, but that's okay, you know. They can't be here. We got a lot of people traveling, and so when they are traveling, they're able to, you know, watch it on, uh, online instead. That's kind of nice. Okay, so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So last week we went into great length with the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Okay, And we said that we didn't want to just state the facts that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again, but we wanted to get to the implications of those facts, the theological truth behind it. And we went to Romans chapter 5, where Paul explains, in a way, what all was happening at the cross. Because at first, they thought it was the worst day ever that the Messiah was crucified and rejected by the very people he was coming to reign over, to serve, to love, to give. He, and it's like it was impossible. But after the resurrection, they started, to, like the penny dropped, they were starting to get it. And Paul says in Romans 5, these two words became very important. This is what God did through the cross of Jesus. God reconciles and justifies us. He justifies us and he reconciles us to God and to each other, creating one universal community that is both global and local, a community of grace. That's what we were talking about last week. And we also explained the fact that everybody wants to be justified. You know, we try to, we want to be right. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want to be accepted. We want to be respected. We want to somehow, and we have to in some way or another, justify our actions and our reason for being. Why am I here? What am I about, etc. But the problem with us is we try to justify ourselves by looking at ourselves. We look in the wrong direction. When God is the one who justifies us in Jesus Christ. While we were sinners, while we are guilty, while we were wrong, 
Through the wrong that was done unto Jesus on the cross, we are made right. Isn't that amazing? Great reversal. And we celebrated that last week. Okay? Great news for us. Now we're getting to one of the most puzzling parts of the Apostles' Creed. And I'm going to focus on the first section of this because I've preached on the resurrection before, and it's not an old thing by any means, but I think they fit together, the resurrection and this phrase that we're going to look at. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Now, before I'm talking about that puzzling feature of the creed, I want to kind of share a little more and make this clear point. This is the whole point. If you... I know you could walk out after this, so. but this is the point of this whole phrase of what I believe about it, and that is this. It's simple. Are you ready for simple? Jesus is Lord over all. Okay? Over all. There is no space or place or circumstance or situation that Jesus is not Lord There is no one to defy his realm or his reign. There is no other place to be where Jesus is. There is not one square inch, one square centimeter, one atom, one micron of this whole creation in which Jesus is not Lord. And I think that's what this phrase in the creed is getting at. Okay? And we're going to look at that implications today. And I think it is good news for us that death The devil and hell itself has no, no standing. And Jesus is Lord over all of these things. Now, when we're confessing the words of the Apostles' Creed, it's not like we're doing something new. In fact, it's very ancient. It's been around for over, well over 1,500 years in various forms. And we are saying with the whole church, if I am ever teaching anything, by the way, that is new, Now, not new applications, but new stuff, like, wow, I've never heard that before. I mean, you could say that, but if I've never, that's a new, if I ever get a revelation, I mean, it's got to be something from the Bible. It's kind of like, there's nothing boring about that. It's just, if I'm saying something that is contrary or contradictory or anything that's kind of like, you know, watch out, that's a problem. So we've been, we're not doing anything that the Christians haven't done for 1,500, 2,000 years when we're confessing the creed. But what we're saying is that this is the story. This is the storyline. This is the grand narrative of our lives. That we are caught up into Jesus Christ through our baptism. In fact, the Apostles' Creed was first a baptismal creed. It was spoken of at baptism to say, this is your identity, this is your destiny, this is your future, this is your present reality. This is whose you are, and therefore you know who you are and where you're going and what you're about. That is the grand narrative. And we say we pledge our allegiance to that, we hold on to that, that's who we are and what we're about. At the same time, I've said, we're also then rejecting the narratives that our culture in our day and age and throughout history, whatever culture has been, Christian church has always been countercultural. And when it has stopped being countercultural, it has lost its edge, its mission and purpose. Okay? But we are always countercultural, and the narratives of our day and age that speak against this, that would try to replace it, that would try to conform us to their idea and identity and destiny. Okay? And so we've gone through a number of isms. These are basically different grand stories, 
in one form or another are saying, this is the way it is. This is the way you grow in life. This is what the good is. This is what bad is. This is what it's all about. It's kind of a grand narrative, each of these isms. And today we're picking on two of them that I think fit in with this. The first is that we are rejecting postmodernism. Okay? Do you know what that word, you know, maybe you've heard it. We better explain what that is in the first place. Postmodernism means that it's beyond modernism. Modernism was the philosophy and the understanding and the grand narrative that said human beings are the center of the universe, the center of the story, and it is our human progress, our rationality, science, modernity, that is all what life is about. And we are progressing. We are getting better and better and better. And the more technology... Did anybody... Have you, have any of you been to Epcot? I don't know if it's changed in the years. I think it has changed. They've changed the story. But the big geodesic dome, AT&T used to run it. That was modernism. If you took that way back when in the 80s, 90s, you got on the ride and it talked about the progress human beings are making and how technology is solving everything. And a lot of people would look at it today and go like, yeah, right. You know, technology is causing more problems at times. It hasn't changed the human heart. So postmodernism said we're rejecting that, but postmodernism is basically saying all truth is relative and the fact that there is no grand narrative. Anytime you try to come up with a grand narrative or a grand story, you're just doing a power play on people. And so we reject the idea that you can, it's my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. There is no grand narrative. Just live as your particular story and your particular way. Hmm, do you see any problem with that? There's kind of, the grand narrative is that there is no grand narrative. You see a contradiction in terms right there? You're trying to make a blanket statement that says there is no grand story, there is no scheme, there is no plan, there is no nothing, but you're asserting that that is the grand narrative. Now, that's not why we reject postmodernism in particular, but it's the idea that truth is all relative, that you can just live your own little private way and your particular way and create your own story when we believe that there is truth for all people, all times, in all places, in all cultures, and that the truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the story that we just confess in the Apostles' Creed in kind of a nutshell. Now, some people will say, oh, but you're being, <laughs> telling me, hey, you know, it's not that this story of the life of Jesus Christ and how we have been woven into it makes me look good, by the way. Do you know, Paul says you can't boast over that. It's not a power trip. It's not a power play. It's not a power grab. It's actually very humbling to say that it is Jesus Christ who has died for me and for everyone. And that truth is good for every race, every culture, every people, every time, everyone. And it's not based on your morality or your intelligence or your or anything else, we're all accessible to that gospel by the Holy Spirit through his word, through the life of Jesus Christ. So I don't think that's necessarily a, you know, power play on other people. It's just an invitation to receive the gift of God. But that is why we reject 
the idea of, well, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. I'm going to live my, you know, that. That's why we reject postmodernism. We also reject fatalism. Now, that's kind of the belief that somehow, well, it is what it is. Have you ever heard anybody say that? It is what it is. I just kind of, I probably have said it many times too. Now, I'm not saying that we can't like let it go, accept the way things are. There is some truth to that. But fatalism is the idea that you can't do anything about anything. So you might as well just live kind of your own little private little life and let it go. And Christians can be fatalists as well. In fact, I've seen, oh, why even bother to do, you know, it, God's good, you know, and you treat it as if there's just this blueprint over everything and there is no ability. God has the victory in Jesus Christ. And having that victory, that means there is not even fate or some Law or rule that is over Jesus Christ and his gospel, he is able to reign over all and there is no realm and there is no thing that can ever take his place. We are not fatalists at all when we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we reject postmodernism and fatalism and build on the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. And that means we have it all in that. So he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, died and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again. Okay. Now, when Jesus died, his, some of his last words on the cross come out in John 19, verse 30. He says, it is is finished. Okay? That Greek word there is tetelestai, which means it is paid in full, it's complete, it's over, done, debts canceled. Okay? Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So he dies once for all for sin. It's all done. Hebrews, another place, I mean, you can get passage after passage that talk about this. Hebrews says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, okay? For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So you get from these passages again and again in the Bible, the once for all nature, the one time, the completed the finished work of Jesus Christ when he dies on the cross, okay? So, in the Apostles' Creed, when it says, he was crucified, under, died, and was buried, he descended into hell, the puzzle is, well, what does that mean? What is that about? We know that it can't be about that he was suffering more for the sins of the world because he already completed that on the cross. Now, you could say, and I know John Calvin said, the descent into hell happened on the cross. That is the fact that when Christ was on the cross, in that sense, when God, his father, abandons him, when the son-father relationship is rift, 
and torn apart. When the son is hanging there and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is experiencing the hellish torment, the loss of his total identity, and the abandonment of his father, which is what hell is. So in that sense, you could say that, but if that's the case, then the Apostles' Creed either got the order wrong or it's talking about something else, okay? So, now, you have to know this too, though, okay? The Apostles' Creed wasn't always set. This phrase comes in a little later than the original creed, and it wasn't fully established until about 400 AD, and then by 750 AD, everybody was basically using that phrase. So you might go like, well, if we'll just take it out of the creed then. I think we would be missing a deeper teaching that is based on scriptures about what God has done and shown that victory. When I said Jesus is Lord over all, I mean it. And I think the scriptures are emphatic about that. So, Here's the two passages that I want to weave together so you understand the victory we have in Jesus Christ and what that means. First is from 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, notice that again, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's, you know, my part in it, that he might bring us to God, that's reconciliation, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In this second passage, uh, Colossians chapter 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So, 1 Peter 3 says, Jesus, he dies once for all for sins, and then he is made alive in the spirit, and he then descends or goes to the spirits who are in prison. And Colossians 2 says, he made a public display of humiliation over all spiritual powers and authorities. This is, I think, what's going on here, okay? Imagine this, you have just won the greatest victory in a war. You've conquered. You are the general. You are in charge. You have just humiliated the foe. You've defeated the foe. You want to make sure everybody knows. Where do you go? You go to the former stronghold, to the middle of the city like General Patton would with all his tanks and go right down the center of that city and say, we are victorious. There is no power here that has accomplished anything, okay? So Jesus has accomplished the greatest ultimate victory upon the cross. He has died and is buried, and God, his Father, raises him by the power of the Spirit. 
And where does he go? To the former stronghold, the place where the devil, at least there, would love to claim, at least here I am Lord. Maybe I don't get anything else, but at least in hell, I'm in charge. And Jesus says, no, you are finished. You have no authority. You have no victory. You have not even a square centimeter of this entire universe or any realm that is yours. I am victorious. I am in charge. Death no longer holds sway. You no longer have any claim over my people. My blood justifies them. My father has reconciled them. I give them authority. I am victorious. You're finished. Nothing is beyond his capability. So Jesus accomplishes that final victory. Now you realize this, I think you know this, about the resurrection and the tomb. The angel rolls away the stone. Why does he do that? Do you have any idea? The tomb was already empty. You know that, right? Jesus didn't have to wait for the angel to get the rock out of the way to come forth. He actually had already gone. In fact, that night, as we know, behind locked doors, if we lock these doors, Jesus appears right in the midst, walks through walls, if you would say. He visits that evening On the road to Emmaus, he shows up and then he disappears at the breaking of bread. He keeps popping in and popping out. There are no limitations. He is seen as a physical body. He eats. He's around his disciples. He knows who they are. They kind of know him. And at times, he doesn't seem quite just himself because his body is now glorified and he is resurrected and he has no limitations None whatsoever any longer. He is totally exalted over all. Do you get it? That's the resurrection. It's not that he comes back to life as it always has been. He comes back to a totally new life that he ushers in for you and me. So where does he go after the resurrection? David Scare says, before the resurrection appearances to his followers, he proclaims victory in hell over the demonic forces. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has exalted, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you imagine this? Do you see that? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. There is no one. Can you imagine, just get this, the devil himself has got to admit against his own will, he does not want, it's kind of that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord. He has to. He doesn't want to. Kind of reminds me of some of the football games yesterday. Can you imagine being in the press conference afterwards for the Florida coach as he has to let again Florida State won? 
You know how hard it is to concede and you don't want to, you don't want to believe it, you want to make excuses, you want to try to figure it out. The devil himself has to do that. He has no standing. He has no authority. He has no way. There is no conniving. He can try to deceive. He can try to lie. He can try to connive his way so that you think that he has a victory, but he has no victory and no power. As we sing in one of our songs, there is no power, there is no power of man, no nothing that can ever come between you and God, or how nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Okay? There's only one Lord. In Paul's day, a lot of people confess that Caesar is Lord, but he is not. And the church from early on said, there is no other that is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. No form of government is Lord. No political order is Lord. No corporation is Lord. No organization is Lord. No nation is Lord. No philosophy is Lord. Science is not Lord. Fate is not Lord. The laws of nature are not Lord. Death is not Lord. And the devil is not Lord. Sin is not in any way our dominant force in our lives as the ultimate. And there are no two equal forces in this world. There is nothing that compares or comes close to Jesus Christ and his victory over the grave. You know, I don't know if you realize this in the Gospels. Jesus compares his ministry and says what he came to on earth to do was basically kick demonic butt. I know I'm putting it in my own way, but that's what he says. He was doing miracles in his life, and when he was doing them, the Pharisees, oh, you're only doing that by the power of, you know, you know who, the devil, the Beelzebub, or whatever, and Jesus goes, wait a minute, excuse me, how is that supposed to work? How does Satan fight against Satan? How can a house divided against itself stand? No, I'm doing it by the finger of God. And then he goes in and he uses this illustration of what he was about. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. That's how he summarizes his whole earthly ministry is he's come here to get rid and kick demonic butt. And he he exercises demons out of people. He sees the demonic in forces of nature, says, quiet, be still, and the storm is calmed. He rids the world of any of the effects of sin and death and the devil's reign through miraculous healings, etc. And he finally puts an end to it all by putting it to death through his own body. Jesus came to enter the strong man's house and bind him. I like how Pedro Okoro talks about this. He says, you got to always remember that the devil is a defeated foe. The battle has been won. You don't need to fight him. So what do you do? You simply stand and exercise your authority. All you have got to do is exercise your authority. Did you get that? That's what Paul says in, um, in Ephesians chapter 6. Stand then. 
with the whole armor of God on you, stand. He doesn't say, you got to attack, you got to fight, you got to come up with the victory. You have the victory in Jesus Christ. So where, to me, for you, where is the scariest place for you to go? Christ is already there. He's conquered it. He has claimed it as his very own. He is Lord there. What place causes the most pain for you? Jesus Christ has already been there and done that and gone through it. Christ has already already arrived at every place we ever can go, and he is Lord there. There is no fear greater, no power bigger, no evil able to overcome the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his power. Now, our culture dabbles so often. It's kind of intriguing to watch movies or read books that kind of go like, ooh, you know, there's these evil forces, these zombie-like creatures, or you name it. It's in some form or another, some wickedness or evil or spiritual thing that's mysterious. We can't figure it out. And you've got to, and we have to come up with some way to overcome it through some incantation, some secret that we have to discover, some amulet you wear, some other power, some human endeavor. And then it's overcome, and we get it so wrong again and again in our culture. Now, I think there is a primal belief that we understand there is evil in this world. There are, is wickedness, and there are demonic forces that go beyond our human understanding. But Jesus Christ has overcome them all and put them in total humiliation shaming them all through his death and resurrection. This is the way Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1. When I saw him, John, that is, when he re- I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is Lord, and there are no places or spaces or circumstances or situations in which he does not exercise that lordship anymore through his death and resurrection. His lordship is ultimate and supreme. And that's why we talk about the resurrection and the power of the resurrection. So N.T. Wright, I'm jumping ahead a little here, he put it this way. The resurrection is not something that we came up with. The resurrection is something the the disciples never expected. He said, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb in the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No new conversion experience would have invented it. No matter how guilty or forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures, to suggest otherwise is stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of your own. In other words... The resurrection was total surprise and total shock to the disciples and everyone else when that stone was rolled away and he was already gone. And the only explanation for the Christian church and the only explanation for them willing to risk their lives and to pledge their allegiance to this one is that it actually happened. And because it actually happened, we have victory, not only over things that we can see and empirically understand, but over any other spiritual force in all of creation. So, what does this whole teaching give to us then in terms of what we've been looking at? Clarity, balance, and belonging. First of all, to clarity. Okay? 
Postmodernism that I've talked about before is just another way to kind of hide, do a blind man's bluff kind of game, trying to say, hey, you can't really know anything for sure. And some people love that idea because it gives me the ability to just create my own little private world in my own little way and live whatever way I want. Nobody can say anything about it except, you know what it also does? It totally isolates you. It isolates you. You can't really make connections. You can't depend on anyone or anything because you just never know. This is how I see it playing out, too. Um, I teach a couple classes at FGCU in leadership. And in those classes, I ask the students to write a philosophy of leadership paper, a personal paper that says, this is who I am, this is what I believe, this is why I'm here, this is my purpose and meaning in life. And so many students are swimming in this kind of ocean of postmodernity, they don't even know it. An older student, a second career student kind of person last year, kind of voiced his concern over writing this paper. And he goes like, how am I supposed to figure out my purpose or meaning in life? I mean, who knows that? Nobody can figure that out. Nobody can know for sure. Ever talk to people like that? They can't figure out what they're here for or why they're here. That's what postmodernity can cause. You never know anything for sure. It's just all kind of, you know, it's kind of like Schrodinger's cat. Once you try to nail it down, it has moved somewhere else. You're never quite sure where anything is. And that's why we've got clarity in this creed. We have clarity not in what we know, but whom we know. And who knows us and what he has done. You can Know your purpose and your mission for sure because Jesus has given it to you. He has given you that mission to make disciples of all nations. He has given you his gifts. He has created you. He has redeemed you. He will sanctify you. He will glorify you. You are victorious. You know your destiny. You know your identity. You know your present reality because of Jesus. It's all tied up with him. That is clarity in a world that is so confused at times. We can know and we can rejoice in what we know and whom we know. Secondly, in balance. I don't know if you've ever read Mere Christianity or the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. But C.S. Lewis said you can give the devil too much weight and you can also act like he, you know, you can go one extreme or the other with him. He put it this way. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. There are Christians that spend way too much time talking about the devil and how the devil's involved in everything. Oh my goodness. And scare. It's fear-mongering. There was a book I think when I was in high school that came out by Hale Lindsay called The Devil is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. Fear-mongering, like, oh my gosh, <laughs> watch out, you know. He is real, but he is not Lord, okay? He has been bound, he is mortally wounded and in retreat. He may not want to believe that, but you've got the authority to tell him the truth. 
and to speak that truth into your own life, he is not in charge. He's not an equal with God that's rivaling like, you know, the angel and the devil on your shoulders. Oh my goodness, which one? It's like there's no competition between them anymore. He is defeated and in retreat. He denies it. He wants to obfuscate that idea, but he is desperate. And yes, he can be vicious, but he's like a bad dog on a chain. As long as you stay out of that chain's length, you are fine. He can howl and growl and he cannot do anything. One little word, Martin Luther said, can fell him. The name Jesus, because he is Lord. That's balance. To understand, yes, they are real, but they are not in charge. We have one who is victorious, and we focus on him. So I hardly ever talk like I'm talking today, because that's not our focus. Our focus is on Jesus and his victory. And finally, belonging. As we've said, there's no place or space where Christ is not Lord, or where you don't belong to him. I may lose a grip on reality itself. That happens to people. You know, I'm already realizing that at times. In my age, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on? But Christ will not lose a hold of me. No one can pluck me from his hand. No one can pluck you from his hand. It is Christ alone and his victory. And that means we are a church where everyone belongs. Because everyone does belong to Jesus Christ, and he has the victory for everyone. You know, when you look around at a church, and the reason that people are together, that it just doesn't quite fit, why they're all together, the only thing that seems to be the common denominator is Jesus, you know that church is doing the right thing. Because every race, every people group, every language, every tribe, every nation is coming together around the throne and declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's belonging. That's the kind of church I want Thrive to be. So, Jesus is Lord over all. There is no place or space or circumstance or situation in which he does not reign And that is so good for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, some of us have fallen into fatalism and kind of given up and we haven't realized the victory we have. The victory you give us every day. Thank you for that victory. Forgive us when we would be fatalistic about our lives as if nothing good can happen. Oh, Lord You are the shape of things to come. You have this world in your hands and you are moving it in your direction. And there are others of us, Lord, who've fallen away from believing in larger stories and narratives and think, well, we're just going to live kind of in a relativistic way. And forgive us for that too, Lord. Help us to be connected to you so that we live for you, to die is gain even, to live as Christ. We pray, Lord God, that your victory is one that we proclaim and name in all circumstances, and we do not back down, but we believe and we trust you completely. So we place that over our lives this day, confident, Lord Jesus, that you are victorious 
and you are our Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.